good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Hannah White. I'm Deputy Director here, and it's a great pleasure to have you all here today for our event on decoding page 48, the government's plan for the Constitution. Um, we have an hour to range across a very uh, wide range of possible topics, which are covered on page 48, which I have here. Um, and the sorts of constitutional reforms which are uh, indicated, mooted on that page include looking at very fundamental questions about the relationship between government, parliament and the courts, um, things like the functioning of the world prerogative, repeal of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. So we have an excellent panel here today who I help, hope will be able to elucidate and pick up on some of the what is said and what is not said on page 48 and what we might um, have to expect uh, over uh, the presumably five years of, of this government. Um, as I said, there were a wide range of proposals. We won't be able to go into it all in depth, but we'll start with the panel, each making some, some opening, giving us some opening thoughts, um, and then we'll open up to questions, so you'll be able to pick up on the bits that are of most interest to you. I should say that the Institute for Government was planning to do um, lots of work on these issues in the new year, and we are likely to have m many more events, so I hope we can welcome you to those as well. Just to introduce the panel before we start, my far left we have Chris White, who is Managing Director of Newington Communications and former Special Advisor to Patrick McLaughlin, Andrew Lansley and William Haig, so has plenty of uh, experience of thinking about how to get things like this done in government. We have Douglas Carswell, um, who was MP for Clacton from 2005 to 2017 um, and co-founder of Vote Leave, of course knows many of the people who uh, will be uh, behind some of the thinking on page 48 and hopefully be able to give us some insight into what they might uh, have planned. Um, we have Hilary Benn, who uh, in the last parliament was uh, chair of the Exiting the EU Committee and is of course a former shadow leader, so has also thought a lot about how to achieve um, things in parliament. And then on my far right, of course, Dr Catherine Haddon, who's senior fellow here and works on these issues um, for us. So uh, just to remind everyone, we're on the record. The event is being live streamed and will be put up on our website afterwards. The Twitter hashtag is <coughs> IFG Constitution and uh, we will be live tweeting from IFG events. Feel free to tweet yourselves. Uh, in the event of a fire alarm, please go back out the way you came in um, and gather outside. Um, but we're not expecting any, any practices today. So we will kick off. Um, Kath, can I start by turning to you and asking you to just give us an overview of the sorts of things that are proposed on page 48 of the Conservative Manifesto? Absolutely. Um, and I think, though, I'm going to start <coughs> by talking about what's on page 47 ah. of the Conservative yeah. Manifesto. Because let's not forget, <laughs> there are three paragraphs <laughs> and a subheading. Ah. Um, and I think these give us a lot of context, or certainly a lot of context for why we're talking about it so much. Um, why we might have been looking at the Constitution regardless of what was set out here. And there's two particular things that uh, the Conservative Manifesto talks about. One, which we'll start with, is it talks about the failure of Parliament to deliver Brexit. Obviously, one of the reasons why we're talking about this so much is the experience of the last two years in Parliament 
the frustrations that many had, the constitutional issues that brought up, the fact that I so often got called to go in and do the media because there was another supposed constitutional crisis in the offing. Uh, and yet here we are with a government with a large majority and the ability to now reflect on all of that <coughs> alongside colleagues in Parliament and think what we do next about our constitution. So I do think that regardless of all that was on in here, this is a good moment for us to be reflecting on our constitution, what's happened and what we need to do. But also, there is that question about how much we, any constitutional change now is a reaction to what has happened rather than setting us up for the future. The other thing though, uh, and there's gonna be a lot of sort of, you know, we've got the word decoding in there, there's gonna be a lot of interpreting words that perhaps weren't intended in the way that we're then interpreting them, but um, it also talks about the strengths of the UK's constitution being its ability to evolve. And to my mind, there is no mention in here at all about written constitution, about codification. Um, so it seems that in all of this, and we'll come on to talking about the constitutional convention that the Conservatives are proposing, um, it doesn't at this stage seem to be talking about whether or not we should codify, but there's an interesting question about some of what they talk about later <coughs> in terms of relationship between executive parliament and the courts uh, then leads into that question. So to turn to page 48, just a quick overview of it all. There's a fair few things in there that are very specific. Uh, it looks like the Fixed Term Parliament Act has had its day uh, and will be repealed, and I suspect we'll hear more about that in the coming months as to what the government intends to do on that. There is also parliamentary boundaries, reducing that down to 600. Uh, there's, they continue to support the first-past-the-post system, so we won't be seeing... Uh, discussion of changes in electoral uh, rules, we, which not massive surprise there. Uh, then I'm not going to go through all of them. There's a lot of uh, specific things about voting practice. Um, what's really interesting, though, is when you start to get into some of the wider mentions, and particularly, which is what we'll mostly talk about today, the final very long paragraph, which talks about the need to look at the broader aspects of our constitution. Um, they're proposing a Constitution, Democracy and Rights Commission in their first year, so that's starting up sometime this year. We may hear more about that on Thursday in the Queen's speech. But, and this is what I hope that we get into today, what is most interesting is the way in which it's very broadly, very loosely set out as to what they're interested in. Uh, so it's the relationship between government, parliament and the courts, that's hugely <coughs> broad. Uh, allows a massive scope to look at the role of Parliament, not just how they all work together. And then there's this very intriguing sentence for me, which is about the functioning of the royal prerogative. Now, I was thinking about this last night. There's a very good chance that just when writing up a, a manifesto, they were sort of hunting around for the right word and just ended up settling on the word functioning. Um, but from my point of view, that's fascinating because obviously repeal of the Fixed Term Parliament Act means dealing with a role prerogative anyway, the ability to be able to dissolve Parliament. Um, but functioning also implies that it is about how well it operates. Uh, and that gets into some very interesting questions, not just about executive powers, uh, not even just about how Parliament scrutinises them, whether some should be put in statutory terms or not, but also about the role of the Queen and the ability of the Queen to act as a backstop uh, on constitutional issues where the role prerogative she has some discretion or doesn't. 
and that's a very fascinating one. There's much more that I could say, particularly about what's in there on the role of the courts, but we're going to get that into that in a bit of more depth, and I want to give the rest of the panel a chance to talk, so we'll stop there. Thanks, Kath. Douglas, let me ask you to go next. Can you give us some insight into um, what you think, you know, there's a lot on page 48, and indeed page 47, um, what you think the priorities are um, and some of the thinking behind uh, what's here in, you know, fairly broad brush terms. Clearly, I mean, on page 48, there are some specifics. Um, we know the Fixed Term Parliament Act is over. We know that there's going to be a redistribution of the boundaries so that it's more equitable. But actually, I think the interesting thing about page 48 is how little detail. There's some hints to talk about the Royal Prerogative, talk about the Human Rights Act. There's talk, I think, uh, about judicial reviews, which stands out. A lot of this is going to be part of the remit of this mysterious commission. So rather than just trying to unpackage what is fairly scant evidence on page 48, I, I thought what I might do in addition is, is dwell on the fact that this is very much a vote leave government. And um, I would share what I think, having known many of the players for 20, 25 years, um, um, in fact, I, I co-wrote a paper called Direct Democracy, um, Empowering People to Make Their Lives Better in 2002, um, with contributions from many of the protagonists in number 10. So I think I've got some insight into, into, into thinking. And I, I would sum it up like this. That for, th for three different branches, for the executive branch, I think there's going to be a radical overhaul. Um, we've heard all the arguments, and I don't want to go into them, about the dysfunctional nature of the British state in Whitehall. Um, look at it charitably. Every incoming government, Blair, Cameron, they've all faced the same problem. They've found it frustrating to get the machinery of the state to do what they want according to their priorities. It took Blair four years before he realized he had to, to do something uh, uh, bold. I think this lot aren't going to make that mistake. They're going to do it in February, March. Um, I, I think there's going to be a lot of attention, um, particularly amongst the journalists, um, about the configuration of Whitehall. Is there going to be a super department, and is this person or that person going to be in charge of it? That's, I think, largely blah, blah. I think f the real story is the nature of the changes that are coming to the center. At the moment, the center is split between Downing Street, the cabinet, and the treasury. And it pretty much explains a lot of the dysfunction. You need a unified strategic core. Um, and I think that would help. There also need to be new lines of accountability. The Hallandine principle and, and the rest of it is bankrupt and moribund and doesn't work. There need to be new lines of accountability. The Kiwis and others do it better. In terms of budget setting and delivery, um, the Irish, I think, do it better. There are lessons to learn from other countries. Civil service working practice, I think, will change. I, I suspect that down to director, if not deputy director level, the expe expectation will be that you stay for a four- or five-year term in your role. Um, and I think that's fairly key to, to, to overhaul. Um, but I think even, even more far-reaching changes in civil service working practice are coming. In terms of the legislature, there's going to be a lot of attention on House of Lords. Um, people get very excited about the House of Lords, and I, I think, in fairness, the status quo is pretty indefensible. I, I would just say that given what happened, the calamity under Clegg with House of Lords reform, I wouldn't expect dramatic change to the House of Lords to be a priority issue. I suspect what they will do is a short-term change, and there'll probably be something like a retirement age of 65 or 67 or 70, or I, 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 someone needs to do the numbers and see what effect that would actually have. Um, I suspect the Commission will be asked to work on a model, and there are other models for a revising upper chamber out there. Um, Indirect Democracy, a paper published in 2005 with some of these people, um, the suggestion was that you have an upper chamber that draws on 
um, local government and, and regional government. So you, you, you set up a revising chamber with a democratic mandate, but not one that challenges the primacy of the Commons. But I suspect that that's a, a, a more detailed conversation for another day. The House of Commons, I think, is where the really significant changes will happen. There will clearly be changes so that an activist speaker can't ever again morph into being um, uh, brazenly, um, well, we, we won't go there. Um, I think recall and how that works needs to be looked at and will almost certainly be within the remit of the Commission. Um, recall is good, but it's not been introduced effectively. There will undoubtedly be a question of whether or not, if you change parties, you should automatically face a by-election. As one of the few MPs who's changed parties and called a by-election and won it and went on to hold their seat in a general election, I would actually have some reservations about the unintended consequences of any uh, regulatory change there, but I, it, it certainly needs to be looked at. I think the really significant and important point, and I hope Hillary and I can agree on this, is select committees. Select committees need to be properly resourced. The chairman of a select committee should have a salary consonant with that of a minister, and all members of a select committee should have a massive increase in salary so that it's a, a career in itself and the select committees should have greater powers, including uh, formal confirmation hearing powers. And I suspect a lot of this will be, will be looked at. Um, the judiciary, page 48, talks about judicial review. I, I, I'm going to say something that most people in this room probably won't agree with, but I think it, it, judicial review is invented by the judiciary. It's a doctrine that inhibits effective public administration, and it needs to be fundamentally reviewed. Policy Exchange has done some great work on that, and I suspect that informs a lot of the thinking on page 48. Codifying the Constitution, well, if you want to interpret codifying the Constitution, I, I'm not sure that's going to happen. I mean, I think that would entrench the power of the Brahmin class, of the, 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 the Lady Hales of this world. Access to justice, to me, that's a line that really stands out. Um, the idea that access to justice for ordinary people um, needs to be overhauled. Um, Finally, I, I suspect, and it's significant, the press <coughs> will get real freedom, not just through the repeal of Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act, I wouldn't be at all surprised if you see a sort of, in effect, a new Bill of Rights, something that defines freedom of speech, perhaps even in an American-type context. I think, personally, it's ridiculous, and I wouldn't be surprised if people in Number 10 think it's ridiculous that people are going to court to sue each other for tweets. Um, America has a very good approach to freedom of speech, and I wouldn't be surprised if we confer on our citizens those, those sort of similar rights. I think that, that a lot of these things will be the remit of the Commission, but I think it's, it's truly fascinating and exhilarating times. Plenty there to, to chew on. I'm sure there will be lots of questions. <clears throat> um, Chris, Douglas has set out a pretty ambitious um, set of possible changes there. You've got some experience of, of trying to think about these things from within government. Um, what does that... Yeah, how, it, how does it sound to you? Well, uh, I think page 48 you can kind of split into different sections. I think... There is existing constitutional reform plans, which um, have uh, previously been announced, which Douglas uh, alluded to, voter ID. Um, it's something that already happens in uh, Northern Ireland uh, with the electoral identity card. Uh, I think that's something that, that you can expect to, to come in in the UK. Uh, boundary reform, abolishing the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, picking up on something that, that Kath said, actually, on the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. And if you abolish that, does one of the big questions I always thought about was if, if you've already codified the... Uh, royal prerogative in the sense that the Queen and through or government through the Queen's uh, residual powers had the power to call an election you codify it and then just simply abolish the act is it like sort of I don't know a spring that just springs back into place uh, and you automatically get the same powers back again I'm not necessarily sure it does and then you're into the, how do you recodify the previous powers so I think there's a lot of work actually that needs to be done there 
um, before you, you go anywhere else. And as Douglas <coughs> said around the activist speaker point, um, there was a lot of thought in Downing Street uh, and, and frustration around the role of the speaker. Uh, and I think most people will know I'm no fan of the pre previous speaker and the way that he um, made some decisions. And I think there will be some moves to, for example, entrench certain standing orders in legislation so that it is much harder for um, uh, the uh, speaker to try and avoid things and, and, and tr basically try and tighten up. So we'll see where that goes. I think something we haven't really mentioned so far today is about the future of the union. And whilst that's not explicitly within page 48, I mean, there's already a significant amount of uh, discussion and, and press reports this week. You may have seen the report in the FT, I think it was yesterday or the day before, around uh, the, the union and potentially House of Lords reform and whether you have uh, elected representatives from Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland effectively, and, the, and England uh, making up that uh, House of Lords uh, chamber, revising chamber. But my experience of being in the Whip's office when Douglas and others were on the, the green benches uh, and having to sort of try and square the circle between uh, the sort of, as I saw it at the time, the Conservative rebels, the, the Liberal Democrats and the government, you know, it brings me out in a cold sweat talking about House of Lords reform and makes me want to scream. Um, but, I mean, I think it, it's very easy on, on something like Lords reform to go down a bit of a blind alley in the sense that this is something that we've been talking about for over 100 years, and every time a government goes down and tries to reform it, um, it, is, it has proves just insurmountable. And so I would question whether something like that is actually, uh, that the, the government will actually go down that route and actually it will, it will go down other uh, routes instead. And I think actually um, age limits, interesting suggestion, I think the right age limit needs to be set, otherwise you might lop off quite a considerable number of peers. Uh, term limits is another idea. I think these will be incremental things that, that the House of Lords or members of the House of Lords are already thinking about in, the, in themselves. In terms of the, the kind of the con uh, Commission on the Constitution, I think it's, there's some really interesting language that's being used. So we talk about restoring trust in our institutions. Um, and I guess the question that needs to be asked is, does trust need to be restored? Now, probably the panel will have quite different views on whether trust does or doesn't need to be restored. I think looking back at the, the, the prorogation case, I wrote at the time that I thought that the length of time that, that the government tried to prorogue Parliament was wrong. It was, uh, I think, the longest period of prorogation previously had been either 20 or 21 days, and it ended up being something like five weeks during that period that the government tried to do. And, and what is sovereign to Parliament is sovereign in the, in the UK. Uh, it's not necessarily government. So um, arguably, the case could be made that the trust issue is, is government. Um, the other question is, is this talk of, I think the, the phrase was, is judicial review being abused? And again, I come back to, to what is uh, abuse. Abuse implies misuse. Um, it's about uh, whether you disagree or agree with that particular phrase. And if you are looking to do something like uh, place restrictions on, for example, the Supreme Court because of what's happened over previous uh, weeks, how do you go about doing that? In what way? Um, it's, it's very difficult to see how you do it without codifying the Constitution, but I can't in all reality see how, and I don't expect the Conservative government to go down that route, and then you're just simply using legislation to do it, which can be overturned at, at any particular point. So we'll leave it with, with that. I think... 
A couple of uh, quick final points. On the, the royal prerogative, I think this is a really uh, difficult one. The government has sort of, it's always got to be scrutinised. Um, and it is possible that when you look at the way that the royal prerogative was used over the, the prorogation period, that you can construct an argument that politics should be left to Parliament, ultimately, uh, to resolve. There was a mechanism in the Fixed Term Parliaments Act to remove a government through a vote of no confidence. The issue is, of course, that we're now talking about removing the Fixed Term Parliaments Act and abolishing it. So what's the mechanism in place? And the thing that, that worries me is if you have a system which goes back to being trust-based, and there was a lot of briefing that was going out uh, from Downing Street at the time that if the, if the government lost a vote of no confidence, they'd refuse to resign. Well, what, in that case, what's then the mechanism for making sure that that trust in politics is there? Um, so I think that seriously <coughs> needs to be uh, looked at. The government has talked a lot about fairness over the last week or so since it won the election, particularly in the context of being fair to those northern voters who, as the Prime Minister said, loaned their vote to uh, uh, the Conservatives for the first time in, in generations. And I think if we are going to conduct this review, that's really important that we conduct it in that spirit as well, that we are fair. Now, the Royal Commissions are something that I think it was Harold Wilson, I think he set up 10, said they, they sort of uh, take minutes to set up and waste years uh, before they actually get there. It is possible to do a good Royal Commission. The Tyree Commission, I think, was an unorthodox way of doing things on banking standards, but actually came out with some uh, interesting uh, results which have a, had a big impact in the banking sector for the good. But whatever way you go about doing it, it needs to try and do, try and restore trust in politics, which I think is at an all-time low uh, over the last 10 years. Now, partly that's historic around the expenses scandal, but also, as the Conservative manifesto said, it's about failing to deliver on that result. So whatever, we go, whatever way we go about doing this, we have to restore uh, trust in politics, and it has to be a, a way that tries to bring the country back together uh, or we'll be in a much worse place. Thank you, Chris. Hillary, clearly, you know, the government's got a sizable majority, so some of the things that it might wish to do, including things that might involve legislation, may be easier than they, some of the things that Chris is trying to do under the coalition and so on. What do you think the implications are for these proposed reforms for the relationship between Parliament and government and the courts? Well, thanks for the invite, having just been through a process of recall, Douglas. We do have recall in this country. I'd just say on the Fixed Term Parliament Act, I mean, I, it was only when I read her manifesto that I realised that we, too, were committed to repeal. <laughs> um, but I'm not quite sure why, because it doesn't seem to have got in the way of very frequent elections. Indeed, we've had more frequent elections since we had the Fixed-Term Parliament Act than we've had since, well, any time, uh, going back to 1974, when we had two elections in a year, in the February uh, and the uh, October. Now, I think what... Uh, the events of the last few months clearly demonstrated is there were bits about the way in which the Fixed Term Parliament Act votes of no confidence would have worked that needed attention. Because what was tested during that time was, well, the British Constitution, insofar as we have one, which is partly made up of legislation, partly convention, partly tradition, and when it was briefed at one point that the, even if the Prime Minister lost a vote of no confidence, he wasn't going to be going anywhere and he wasn't going to resign, the understanding had always been, you lose, you go. And we were told, he may lose, he's not going. So that would have needed to uh, be fixed, and maybe it needs to be fixed in the future if anyone else is so minded. 
Um, now, I can't offer any particular insight at all on the thinking behind paragraph uh, 48, um, but it worries me a lot, precisely because it is so unclear about what the government has in mind. And it seems to me that the origin of this um, is grumpiness. And I think grumpiness as a basis for constitutional change is not a terribly good idea. The government is undoubtedly grumpy at the House of Lords because it keeps losing. Now, that wasn't so much the case during the coalition, but since the coalition broke up, uh, the government has lost a lot in the House of Lords. It's been grumpy, and I think, in fairness, governments of all parties have been a bit grumpy at uh, um, rulings of the courts, whether it's the uh, application of the Human Rights Act. But I would say the Human Rights Act, which I'm very proud, it was uh, a Labour government that put it on the statute book, is a really important part of the written bit of our Constitution because it is there for all of us and it protects all of us. And I think you mess about with it at your peril because it's part of the check and balance uh, in our uh, system. And, I, and government is undoubtedly grumpy about judicial review. Now, but what kind of judicial review do they dislike? Was it the original Gina Miller decision that said, I think perfectly reasonably, rights which Parliament has given to people can only be taken away, or the process of beginning to take them away can only start um, in the hands of the people who gave them in the first place, namely Parliament rather than the executive, who should send, who should decide whether to send the Article 50 uh, letter. Was it the judicial review that means that John Warboys is going to stay in prison for a lot longer, which is clearly where he should be? Uh, are people objecting to that? Uh, or is it, of course, the famous decision on prorogation? Um, I watched that in, a, in the cafe just inside the conference centre in Brighton. And I must say, I, I would like to pay tribute to Lady Hale for the absolute clarity with which she made the argument. And, of course, the government was cross. But it seemed to me the importance of that decision was this. If the Supreme Court had said, it's none of our business, what would there be to stop a future government saying, I'm proroguing Parliament, not for five weeks, but for five months? Now, I, I think it was absolutely right. Since it, what, the reason that was given, and we have to get into the details of the case, the reason that was given we want to have a green speech, well, we all know how long generally it takes to, to prorogue Parliament to have a green speech, and it isn't five weeks. And the purpose was otherwise, precisely because Parliament was exercising its power to take decisions about Brexit, which the government didn't like. I would worry a great deal about, um, picking up your point, Chris, um, standing orders in the House of Commons being stuck in legislation, because to defend John Burkow, he took the view that if Parliament wanted to discuss something, if Parliament wanted potentially to make a change, that he would rule in a way that allowed that to happen. And in the end, people talk about the Constitution having been turned upside down by the way Parliament behaved. A sovereign Parliament decided it was going to vote in a particular way and pass particular legislation. And if... Because this at heart is about a tussle between the executive and the legislature. Let's be absolutely honest about this. And of course... Uh, governments will want to have greater control over what happens and not be subject to pesky scrutiny and accountability on the part of MPs who have been elected. 
Of course, if you offer governments that, or if they think a, a commission is going to be the way to do this, um, uh, then, of course, uh, they will seize it. If it's wrong in principle for Parliament to legislate against the wishes of the executive, which I heard some people argue, well, why do we have private members' bills? Because the Cooper bill, the what became the uh, Withdrawal Number 2 Act, they were, in effect, private members' bills that happened to be taken on a different way, day of the week other than a Friday. We allow Parliament to do that. For 100 years, the truth is, the, the legislature had ceded to the executive a huge amount of power over what we discussed, when we discussed it. Uh, we had been supine for an extraordinarily long period of time, and the right reforms and what happened after that begun that uh, change. And I, for one, would very much uh, regret it if we go back to the government uh, controlling everything, even though, of course, uh, Hannah, they have got a uh, majority. Just a couple of other points. I, uh, the words access to justice, well, I'd be very grateful if we could look at that. I think the first point to make is we've never had equal access to justice in this country. If you were very rich or had a very low income, you had a chance, and everybody in the middle didn't have access to justice. We have even less access to justice now since the changes to legal aid. Now, if this is a signal that the government wants to uh, amend some of those changes, which would mean a lot to my constituents who come to me with immigration and asylum cases, who are having to go and represent themselves in front of the court because there is no legal aid to support them in those cases, I think that would be a really, really uh, good thing. Um, the House of Lords, I expect what the government will end up doing is appointing a whole load of peers to try and lose less often. Uh, which is probably the easiest way from their point of view of uh, dealing with some of the cause of that uh, grumpiness. I've long been in favour of an elected second chamber. We can debate, perhaps we will today, whether that should be based on the regions. I think the two big issues which are not directly addressed in paragraph 48 that we need to think about, they are touched on in other areas of the Conservative Manifesto, are one devolution. Now, the government said a lot about that. Speaking on, on behalf of one constituency in Leeds, we want a tram system and we want Northern Powerhouse Rail to go ahead and we want HS2 to be completed. Now, if we'd had power and money devolved to us a long time ago as Yorkshire or the Leeds City region, a number of those projects would be underway. I am very strongly in favour of devolution. And the second huge challenge we've got is will the United Kingdom still exist in its current form? in five, 10, or 15 years' time, and I think that's what we need to focus on. Thanks. Thank you, Hilary. I'm just going to allow myself one small question, picking up um, on something Chris said, and then I'm going to open up to the floor, so please think of the questions you would like to ask, and if anyone is next door, then feel free to pop your head through the door, um, and we have some waving mics. Um, Chris, you were just talking about the, the commission and, and it's important about how it's done, given the emphasis in the manifesto on um, the breakdown in trust and the need to heal the rift between the people and politicians and so on. Douglas, I was wondering whether you can shed any light for us on how it, how the Commission might go about its work in order to, I, to I, achieve that most I, effectively. I don't know, but it does need to draw on a broad spectrum of opinion. I notice in the audience is Graham Allen. Graham has been championing and campaigning on these issues for longer than almost any other member of, of, of Parliament. It needs to contain voices from the, the left and from the right. It needs to contain a, a spectrum of, a, of opinion. 
But I think it would be a mistake to see all of this and the remit of the Commission as being informed primarily by the Brexit battles of the putrid Parliament that's just come to an end. It, we shouldn't see any of these changes as a knee-jerk response to what's happened over the past two years. If you really want to understand the need for change, particularly with reform to things like judicial review, don't think of anything that's happened after 2015. Think of what happened, particularly in departments like the Education Department, between 2010 and 2015. It was the experience of many people within departments like that trying to reform things that things were very, very difficult to reform because of systems failure within those departments and because of the excise of judicial review that made it very, very difficult for people with a democratic mandate and with all, 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 all the ducks lined up um, through executive and legislative functions to actually avoid this constant refrain um, that, Minister, if you try and do this, you can't do it because of judicial review. That, that's what's informing it genuine, authentic attempts at improving public services and proper public administration. It's that that informs the need for these changes, not the battles of the past 24 months. Okay, who has questions for the panel? Sue, can we start here in the front row? Hi, Julie Mellor, Chair of Demos. Um, I wanted to pick up on actually what you were just saying, Douglas, about uh, what Graham has been working on and what we work on at, at Demos, in that I think the point you made about trust in politics is going to be key here. So how is this done in a way that will generate trust in the solutions from the public? And I think some form of deliberative process, even if it's not the mechanism, even if there is a commission, having something like a citizens' assembly that feeds into it, um, I think would be key to generating trust because what we know is that citizens assemblies uh, if you want to know what the majority of the public are likely to think when they have the opportunity to have access to information and experts that's the way to do it so I'd be interested in the panel's view on that I'll just take a couple more questions before we do you want to just go to the gentleman straight behind could you give us your name William Wallace um, aged member of the House of Lords due to be paid off shortly <laughs> Um, two rapid questions. Uh, Douglas, um, you talk about problems of civil service turnover. Ministerial turnover has been far higher than that of civil servants and, and much more damaging to continuity in terms of government. Uh, how on earth do you think we can get the new government to allow ministers to stay in post for three to four, even five years? And secondly, we're going to restore trust in government. Surely that has to involve restoring local government and getting away from the idea that schools are run directly from Whitehall because actually that's what people care about at the local level and social care, etc. Where's local government in all of this? And then the gentleman here on the aisle. Yeah, yeah I have a question to Douglas Carswell really about uh, judicial review. Sorry, I'm George, George. Peretz, I'm a, a, a QC specialising in public law. Um, the vast majority of judicial review is, for a start, it's a tribunal level. It's correcting routine decisions of government in areas like immigration, social security, planning. Um, that's absolutely critical um, in order for individuals to make sure that proper decisions are taken and mistakes aren't made. So, that's a really important point to bear in mind when thinking about judicial review. 
Second point about judicial review, an awful lot of it is not against Whitehall, it's against local government, it's against quangos like the War Boys case. And the aim of it is to make sure that those bodies stick within the powers given to them by Parliament. And that, that again, is actually a critical aspect of judicial review. If you're talking about cutting judicial review back, what exactly is the mechanism going to be to make sure that all those bits of government um, stick within the powers that Parliament uh, has given them? Uh, the third point is I've heard a lot of criticism of the general tests used in judicial review, um, sticking with which are essentially uh, has the decision maker stuck within their statutory powers, have they behaved reasonably, have they behaved fairly. If you're thinking of cutting back on judicial review, which aspect of those tests are you actually going to change and what's your justification for that? I have heard no coherent explanation from anybody including the executive power project, sorry, I mean the judicial power project, Freudian slip there, um, <laughs> that actually they, wa they want to replace the current tests for judicial review with. Okay. I appreciate, George, that some well. lawyers don't like the idea of curbing the power of the courts and the lawyers, but I think it's also fair to say that Sometimes judicial review ends up with judges saying what they wish the law to be rather than what the law actually is. And so I think there's good scope for change. And more informed minds than mine at Policy Exchange have done a lot of work on this. I'm not here, I'm not part of the government, but I suspect that a lot of the work that Policy Exchange has done will inform change. I think change will happen, and I think it will be for the best. I think, I think effective public administration requires and necessitates change in the power of the judicial branch to intervene and de facto strike down uh, the executive. Um, William, I, I thought your point about ministerial turnover was absolutely right. It's absolutely the case. Um, if you have director generals in departments staying for two years, you have ministers sometimes staying for six months. Um, I am really taken by the idea um, of what they have in countries like Malaysia or, or, or Australia with the charter letters. I love this idea where you mandate a minister and a Department of State with a named team of civil servants in a charter letter to deliver on certain priorities over the term of a parliament. I suspect you'll see something like that. I think it will become highly unusual for a minister to change and indeed for the top civil service team to change. Um, it's essential that you do that if the second tier of, of changing the centre, which is um, focusing on delivery, is, is to be meaningful. Um, so I, I, I think you can do that, but I think it requires... Um, self-discipline on the part of, of politicians. Um, and I think the way to hardwire that into the system is through this idea of charter letters. On local government, you're absolutely right. I'm a big fan of localism. Every politician in opposition talks about localism in office. They never do it. The weird thing now is that actually the, the key to localism is restoring control of the finances. Changes in finance basically means that revenue support, you, you could localize the amount of money that councils get from revenue support now through local revenues. You've got to give local councils the power to raise their own revenue and set that. You've got to denationalize council tax, you've got to, uh, um, business rates, you've got the whole range of things you've got to do. But I think you, 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 could, you could do them. Um, and I think you need to do them and do them meaningfully. Um, your point um, about making sure that these changes have a broad input, a absolutely. You can't have. You know, we've had the Cameron sofa gang, we had the Blair sofa gang, you can't have the Boris sofa gang deciding on these changes. You've got to have a broad set of consensus. I'm personally skeptical about deliberative democracy, I'm personally skeptical about some of the mechanisms of, 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 of these um, 
um, institutional changes, but um, you, you do need you, you need more than just Tories to to sign off on this. Um, and you know, if I was on the left, you know, the left in this country, the party of the levelers, the party that gave women equal rights, the party that campaigned for gay rights, I would I would want to make sure that actually, if I was on the left of British politics, you know, this is an opportunity for the left too, and they they're needed and these changes need the left. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Douglas about length of ministerial tenure. I mean, shifting ministers around is usually about trying to appear to revive the government's uh, reputation or fortunes and isn't an aid to good governance. I would slightly, I mean, of course there is civil servants' resistance because all departments have a world view which may or may not chime with what the minister wants to do. But I think, you know, when Tony Blair came in in 97, the literacy and numeracy strategy was pursued successfully by bringing in Michael Barber and just setting up a brand new bit of the Department for Education and Employment. I was working as a special advisor there at the time. And it was very, very successful. Judicial review, well, it's like the weather as a minister. You have to live with it, but it can't stop you doing what you want. I wanted um, to respond to the point that you made about citizens' assemblies. Because I'm in... I'm in I'm rather torn about this because I've seen uh, firsthand we had one on climate change in Leeds at the council set up. You see what happened in Ireland as a precursor to the two historic uh, referenda that took place there. But it, it seems to me that some of the argument for it is our parliament isn't working, there's a lack of trust, so let's in effect bypass it completely. And I, that came to a head for me in a conversation I had with some Extinction Rebellion uh, folk outside Westminster Abbey a few months ago and of course as you know one of their proposals was the Citizens Assembly randomly chosen people um, to decide what should be done. Now part of their argument is we're all so short term that we can't possibly take the long term decisions required but where the conversation uh, came to a stilted halt with, was when I said Okay, so they'll come forward with recommendations. What if the public don't like what they're recommending? And it seemed to me that thought hadn't really been given to the question of consent arising out of the work of a citizens' assembly. And it may be an irredeemably old-fashioned view, but when I last checked, I thought the parliament that's just been elected is the citizens' assembly, and I would be inclined to work much harder on trying to ensure that that is an effective body in representing people and doing things, um, rather than creating a wholly parallel structure. But it absolutely has its place to help create a climate, inform understanding, deal with tricky things that Parliament might find difficult in the first instance. Take random assisted dying. We had a very good debate in the House of Commons. The House voted... Uh, overwhelmingly against the bill uh, with very um, narrow provisions. I voted for it. I think that would be a, a really good issue to look at because I suspect we're going to return to this one way or another. Yes, uh, I'm also going to start with ministerial turnover. It is a huge problem, yes, um, and one that we don't discuss enough. We interview lots of former ministers for our Ministers Reflect project and one of the questions we always ask them is, you know, what achievements are you most proud of? And they're always a bit torn because the things that they were responsible for starting are not the things that they completed in their time in office. 
Um, so they're having to take credit for what their predecessors kicked off and you know, don't know what's going to happen to their projects. Um, it's, I mean, Douglas has already talked about civil service turnover. It's a problem in both quarters. Um, and it means that, especially over long-term policy challenges, there aren't the people to see them through. There isn't the institutional memory. And uh, it, it, it just makes a lot of everything else that we're talking about harder, whether it's you know, dealing with some of the bureaucracy of Whitehall, whether it's uh, sort of thinking about long-term policy <coughs> challenges. Um, just to go to George's point about uh, judicial review and actually to link it back to what Douglas was talking about earlier on of frustrations about Whitehall, there is a danger of trying to tackle judicial review through the judiciary when the problem is the civil service. If the problem is excess bureaucracy because caused by risk averseness that is not valid about judicial review, then the problem is with the civil service. Um, and so you need to, I mean, this is the, the greatest difficulty is we don't have an evidence base for this. We don't know about consultations and impact assessments, how much they're being driven by judicial review or whether they're doing the thing that they're supposed to do, which is consulting the public and, you know, interested bodies or understanding the impact of this policy. Um, and if there's something going wrong there, then look at the area where there is something going wrong and don't change. I mean, by all means, look at judicial review, but look at it for the right reasons. Just to go to this point about deliberative process, I think this is what this goes to the broader issue about how much can we do. We're just coming out of a massive, uh, we're not even through this massive constitutional change, leaving on 31st October and then into the next stage of Brexit. Um, this is why I say I don't see, there isn't scope in here for looking at codifying our constitution. I think that's the right choice at this stage. What we, how you go about doing anything like this really depends on what your end game is. At the moment, you have a bit of a wish list, uh, some of which is explicitly laid out, some of which is alluded to. Um, if it's a wish list, then I'm not sure that deliberative democracy is the way to get you through that. What you need to do is be focusing on what are the pros and cons, what are the unintended consequences, and bringing together, yes, left and right, parliament and so forth to think that through. If, though, your focus is on restoring trust in our democracy and you want to use deliberative democracy, then you need to give them the scope to decide what the terms of reference, what the parameters are, what issues we want to get into <coughs> and so forth. And there's a bit of a tension between the two in this, I think. Uh, um, picking up on the points Lord Wallace uh, made, I think, first, on the ministerial turnover point, with the rest of the panel, I agree but with a caveat in the sense that there are a number of things you need to think about. One is events, and uh, we all know that ministers sometimes fall off a cliff or um, sort of manage to accidentally shoot themselves in the foot in a way that requires their replacement. Um, uh, also, I think, you know, you, there's a genuine fact about the fact sometimes some ministers, speaking from a party management point of view, which is kind of where I was, that you have to replace some people who are too stale, not delivering, um, that actually there are good people coming up and you need to promote good people. Um, the, the frequency of reshuffles, so what I would call you know, substantial reshuffles, I mean, I think under the Cameron, gov Cameron Coalition government, um, he was notoriously reluctant to do that but was sometimes forced into it. And I think that that is a, a good position to be in. Do we really need to do a reshuffle? And it, every six months in the WIPs office, we used to do a kind of real deep dive into the performance of ministers, assessing how they, they did, and also the performance of backbenchers as well, and see, identify who was, was good and, and, and important. So it's a balance to be struck, and I think we need to, 
generally err on caution, but equally you can't just have someone in place for five years um, and they're without naming names. There are plenty of examples of people who just got, you know, effectively in the parlance of, of political parties went a bit native and you need to keep that, uh, that refreshing uh, zest of, of new people coming in and, and challenging how things are done. Um, on the charter letter that Douglas mentioned, I think it just suddenly struck me that it reminds me very much of the departmental business plans that the coalition uh, introduced, um, holding uh, the department to an account, uh, setting out the plan for government. Um, you know, it may be an evolution of that. It's something that I think is, is a good thing. Everybody knows where the department is trying to go and, and what they're trying to achieve. On the, the final point on um, local government, I think devolution of, of local government was a big thing under the coalition government and George Osborne was, was right to try and uh, devolve it. Uh, much more powers down. The issue is that we now have this kind of, because it's devolution of stall, we've got this patchwork quilt of, of powers where in, in Manchester, Liverpool, you know, Tees Valley, it's kind of working very well where everyone's pulling together. But in, in Hillary's patch in, in Yorkshire, it's very difficult to see sometimes where everybody can't agree how to pull the powers. And so bits of Yorkshire are sort of going in one direction and bits of Yorkshire are going in, in another direction. And actually, even in the rest of the country, in the shires, for example, there is no accountability. There is no sense of kind of where the, the local devolution is, what it means and what it means to local people and how, how you can be held accountable. So much more work needs to be done into, uh, gone into that. So it's not just ending up a system of kind of, well, you know, if you happen to live in this postcode, in this area of Manchester, you, you get really great access. You get much more local uh, power and accountability because you live there. But if you're just over the border uh, in another part of Lancashire, you just don't get it. So... I'd like to get through another two rounds of questions before the end. So can we keep questions short and answers short from the panel? Um, starting over here, Suk Graham, seeing his name has been brought into this already. Thank you. Thank you for the plug, Douglas. Uh, Graham Allen, convener of the Citizens' Convention on UK Democracy. There's a little bit of fear about what people might do uh, around page 48, but I think there should be optimism as well. It's a recognition, and there's a recognition from all four part, main UK parties in their manifestos that there needs to be something. Some call it a commission, others a convention, others assemblies. But the strip away the poetry, if I can use that word loosely, of the manifesto words, the prose, the bottom line, is that the government have committed to a review of democracy, full stop. It may be through a commission, it looks like it will be a commission, but that commission can be lots, take lots of forms. And I think the most important thing for us is to ensure that people who've not really got much of a mention today, the citizens who are suffering from a broken democracy, it wasn't broken on Thursday, it wasn't broken in 2017, it's been creaking for a long time, but citizens need to be involved. Now, how you do that is really a very, very important question for the Institute to consider, and I hope they do so quickly, uh, because decisions will be made in Whitehall and Number 10 very quickly. But to, Im to imagine, I hope the panel will agree with me, that there, there has to be a deliberative element, a slow-cooked, careful element involving citizens of the United Kingdom who can feed in. And this isn't taking away the powers of Parliament, actually, Hillary. It's going to help the strengthen the powers of Parliament because at the end of the day, the big battle is between the legislature and the executive. But please consider positively and optimistically how we might all get together 
and assist government in ensuring that the people's voice is heard in a sensible, rational, deliberative way. Hello, Robert Shrimsey from the FT. Um, picking up on Hillary's point, that um, you know, it, it's very easy to look at constitutional reform based upon the problems of the last few years um, when a government had no majority and forget that actually the key point of a constitution surely is to protect the citizens from a government that has a lot of power and a centre that's a lot of power. And I'm curious to get the panel's sense of how uh, a government which is committed to protecting the citizens from an overmighty elective, ele 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 executive, um, might find, square that with their own often impatience to get things done and get things done fast, which requires a strong centre, and how those two will fight each other. Thank you. Uh, Matthew Hamlin, House of Commons, uh, which is actually one of the things we've not talked about very much this morning. I was interested in the comment, I think, from uh, Douglas Carswell uh, about legislating to uh, curtail the powers of the Speaker. Uh, I was intrigued that the proposal of using legislation to manage the standing orders of the Commons. Um, uh, I just wanted to make, when we introduced, with well, the government, the then government introduced the English Vote for English Laws changes, they took a very deliberate decision to do that, not through a legislative route, for all sorts of good reasons. Um, I would have thought with a government majority of 80, the Speaker's powers to do very much automatically limited because whatever decisions the speaker takes you know the house will have a very different definitive view in one direction rather than another but i'd be interested in any any thoughts about standing order changes the government could easily make now with a large majority Chris, I'll start with you. Uh, yeah, i'll just take that one point i think um or so i was involved in drafting some of the um english votes for english laws uh, things before i left in in 2015 and um we deliberately decided to do it by standing orders because it was something that you could do easily um, and that could evolve with time. Um, I happen to think that the, where we ended up with evil was uh, overly complicated from, from some of the initial plans, but, um, but taking it on to the next point, which is around um, enshrining some of that in, in legislation, it's not something I personally agree with. Um, I think it's something that the, the government is, is always looking, as someone previously said, to address the issues of the past. And as you say, with the majority of 80, it's a lot easier. But equally, as with evil, um, we have to find a better acronym for that. <laughs> with English Votes for English Laws, it was about trying to protect a situation where you end up in a hung parliament and suddenly you, you, you kind of have the potential for Scottish MPs <coughs> deciding matters on, on England because of the way things fall out. So I think that this is, is effectively setting the corrective for if in the next parliament that you have a situation where you have a speaker who, who may, depending on your point of view, uh, seek to bend the, the, the standing orders in a way that is, is not, in a way that they weren't designed, uh, it's enshrining it to prevent that happening. But as we've seen from, you know, standing orders, I mean, go through several iterations in, in a single um, parliament. I mean, you, you have, what is it, two, three revisions uh, sometimes in a parliament and uh, addendums that go on and, and, and enshrining something in legislation makes it awfully hard to then go about. I mean, having to change every time you want to sort of correct something. So personally, I'm against it, but I, I know it's something that the government considered and may well look at quite seriously. Well, on that, yes, on that last point, I'm, I would be opposed to putting 
bits of the standing orders in legislation because, well, I can see the clause now, uh, it shall be unlawful for the Speaker to agree to any constitutional innovation which might result in the government losing a vote in the House of Commons. I mean, it's um, <laughs> a very tempting for government to try and do that. That is not what legislation is for. Graham, I uh, agree with you, we're going to have this uh, convention. And I'm very much in favour of deliberations, part of that, notwithstanding what I said, which was about who in the end takes the decision. I think for me that is an important uh, distinction. And I join others in paying a tribute to the work you've been doing over a long uh, period of time. Um, so your, your question, well, the Human Rights Act and, and JR, to take two examples, are really important protections for the individual against uh, an overmighty uh, executive. And that's why reading... <coughs> Um, this paragraph, depending on the motivation, makes me feel a bit uneasy. Um, having said that, I, I would express frustration, having been a minister, at losing JLRs on the length of consultation processes. Uh, I think there's a difference between you know, process and so on. Because if you get elected on a commitment to stop sending eight-year-old children up chimneys, I'm not sure you need a terribly long consultation period to say, well, we've actually concluded that our initial manifesto proposal was correct and we're going to stop making it happen. And I don't think we should confuse uh, a process with the objective that's trying to achieve. There were times when I was very irritated by the outcome of uh, JR or fear that it might happen. But as I said, you have to live with that. Yeah, I'm just going to carry on with that point. Um, I mean, there's another way into this, because we're all talking about is, you know, some of the language in here very worrying, and especially if it is a reaction to uh, some of the frustrations of some of what happened in the last uh, couple of years. Um, but the other way, you could flip it on its head and say that actually, if you read this and didn't know that all of that was going on, there's a lot of very sensible stuff in here that does need looking at. JR does need looking at its impact on government, on policy making. Um, you know, it would be useful to have a convention looking at lots of different aspects and so forth. Which goes to the other point, a part of the problem in all of this is that trust in the executive and how it's using the bits of the constitution that are based on trust. Um, and a lot of that basically stems from a lot of briefing that came out over the course of the summer and in the early part of, of um, the autumn about things that the government was willing to do. And so in doing that, you've created this suspicion, you've created this concern and so forth. What's strange is that now with a large majority, you would feel the need to keep doing that uh, when we could have a sensible conversation about how all of this um, you know, could play out. And so that goes back to an, an, an important issue. And the other thing to say is you know, forgetting language that's in here about balancing, prote protecting the rights of the individuals against the overbearing states and uh, so forth. The other way of looking at it is, you know, don't do anything that then if your opposition got into power, they could use. If we were looking at a Jeremy Corbyn government and they were doing things that the Conservative Party would then object to, think about what it looks like from the other side. That's the main sort of test, I think. In, in, in one minute, I mean, Matthew, I very specifically didn't say that what was needed to rein in the... Um, mad speaker was um, legislation. On the contrary, to, I believe to legislate would further invite the intervention of uh, activist judges in the affairs of the legislature. Um, the constraint needs to be done with reference to the House of Commons, not to the courts, but it can be done. Um, again, I just emphasize this point. 
if you read page 48 through the prism of what's happened over the past two years, you're missing out on the big picture. The really significant change is not with reference to the Gina Miller case or prorogation or all the rest of it. Um, there are real problems to do with governance, to do with people with a mandate to act as the executive to do so without constant attempts. To, you know, inertia in Whitehall comes often with a legal excuse. And you're right, sometimes um, it's not just the judicial the judiciary and the judicial review process that needs to change. If you're going to have a unified strategic core at the centre of government, which I think you will have, you need, I think, to have a legal counsel available to it in the way that the White House has legal counsel available to it. If you try and get advice from the Attorney General on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock, the desk is usually empty because they've gone um, and they've wandered off early. You need a legal counsel that can give you the best legal advice so that you can cut through that inertia. Um, but you know, I, 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 think, um, I think a lot of the way of interpreting this change is by looking at the frustrations that every reformist administration in my adult lifetime has had. When coming into power, ministers suddenly after two, three years realize things aren't happening. And I think a lot of the reasons for that is because Whitehall is often organized in a, in a way that is systemically dysfunctional. And that needs to be at the heart of the change. I know some people will need to go, but I'm just going to take one last quick round of questions. So, so can you take the gentleman with glasses? Um, yes, uh, Robert Morland. I'm a former member of the European Parliament. And perhaps I should add, I'm still a vice president for Stoke-on-Trent North Conservative Association. Um, and I think all this would bypass them in terms of what's just happened. It, all we want is regeneration and be made the capital city of the UK. But my question really is, um, we haven't said very much about fundamental rights, and I'm presuming the government will look to replace what it will lose in terms of leaving the European Union. Indeed, critical remarks have been made about it. But I think very often, actually, remarks from government, and I assume actually, going back to the civil service, not entirely an accurate interpretation of what um, our European commitments were. I mean, I thought it was actually quite straightforward. What are you really expecting the government to do? How radical is it going to be? Um, and are things going to be left in and left out? Thank you. One last question. Gentleman here. Cyril Meadows, going back to what uh, Graham Allen said, what about letting the citizens elect our head of state? Okay, that's a good last two to finish on. Hilary, do you want to start? Um, I think we've probably got enough to be working on without... Um, Picking up the, the last proposal that you have uh, made, pardon? Well, I think yes. I think that's the, yeah, that's probably the best way of describing my view of it at the moment. I wouldn't just go there uh, myself. A, re a really important point that you've raised, sir, about um, scrutiny and forms of accountability, and well, not so much legislation because the government picked up all the European legislation to put it into our law, but how it will be applied. Air quality is a really good example because, um, uh, indeed, I remember meeting the person who is currently Prime Minister when he was Mayor of London when I was the Environment Secretary to ask him what was he going to do about the fact that we were breaching European air quality standards in London. 
Um, now, I think the, the big question is, what will the enforcement mechanism be for some of those things uh, once we've left the European Union? How will government and other bodies be held to account uh, in those circumstances? And the honest answer is, I don't know how that is going to turn out. It depends what the government chooses to do, and I'm probably not the best guide as to the government's intentions in trying to answer your question. I'm a huge fan of Boris Johnson, but the idea of President Boris living in Buckingham Palace fills me with dread. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have a, 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 an elected... I wouldn't. Um, I, I wouldn't. I'm a big fan of the republic across the ocean, the American republic, um, and I think there is something we should learn from them. They have a Bill of Rights, which, of course, um, they borrowed and nicked off our Bill of Rights. Um, and their Bill of Rights means that they have a freedom of speech and a freedom of, of journalism and a freedom of the press. I mean, look, I, I think a lot of what journalists write is, is, is ridiculous, but you have a freedom to write ridiculous things. And, in fact, you have a freedom as a tweeter to tweet ridiculous things about other people. Um, I think um, I would love to see us extend those liberties to this country so that never again can a government threaten the free, the free press or indeed the freedom of, of people on social media. Um, on the, the Bill of Rights point, we will see a Bill of Rights uh, over the next few years. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes. There's so much, as, as Douglas alludes to, that you could put into it. And I think it's, uh, I think it's a real opportunity to actually look and, and, and assess again as, as to what, sh what should be in our Bill of Rights, what should constitute uh, the rights of a UK citizen now that we have uh, or on, are on the verge of, of leading, leaving the European Union. So I think it could be radical. I think at this stage we just don't know. So I think it's more of a watching brief. And on the, the, the constitutional uh, uh, monarchy sort of head of state point, I think of all the things that we've been discussing today, it's possibly, uh, from my point of view, the one bit that is working quite well at the moment. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that if it isn't broke, don't try and fix it. Um, and so we'll leave Her Majesty in Buckingham Palace for the foreseeable future. I always feel that's the moment we should, we should end on. I'm um, just going briefly on uh, Bill of Rights, uh, Human Rights Act. I mean, obviously, you know, we haven't, this is not a Brexit event specifically, but that's really the big question. And we've heard today about increasing the role for the lower courts in the future. This is obviously going to be an area that will be up for negotiation. At the moment, there is a commitment to uh, maintaining sort of, uh, you know, some kind of parity with, with the European Union on fundamental rights of individuals and giving effect to um, European Convention on Human Rights. So it's going to be part of the debate over the next year and we wait to see with the majority where the government go on that. Thank you very much. I think we'll draw it to a close there. Um, can I invite you to thank the panel for an excellent <laughs>